Hello, good evening, fellow inertial observers. Uh, tonight is a very, very special night. Uh, I am here with my good friend and esteemed uh, colleague. Um, and by colleague, I truly mean that. I don't just mean we're the same age group. Um, we're actually almost done with a paper right now. We're writing with two other people here at UC Irvine. Uh, and every time I talk to him about anything related to quantum field theory, my mind kind of blows up a little bit. And uh, he's, <laughs> he's extremely insightful. And um, he's, uh, he's great on the intuition. So looking forward to having him here. And uh, without further ado, I bring you Michael Waterbury of UC Irvine. Thanks for the intro, dude. <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay. This is uh, very different from our normal. I know, yeah. Little talking situation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, we uh, we essentially, I, I mean, back when life was normal, Michael and I used to, I guess, I would say on average once a week, just kind of talk about quantum field theory, and I'd ask him questions about things, and um, he get in his zone and and whatever um and it's always awesome so i was like why not just make it live um so yeah and so he gets to see my showmanship face and he is here um so the first thing i want to do just to get the ball rolling as i usually do is have him give a little self-introduction about who he is what he does um and maybe even talk about a little bit of his hobbies <laughs> yeah so uh i'm michael i'm a I'm in my fourth year here at uh, UC Irvine, so coming up near the end of this. Um, I mostly am interested in like non-perturbative aspects of quantum field theory. So, like, what even is an interacting quantum field theory? How do you define that in a in a rigorous sense, or even make sense of of those sorts of things? And usually, supersymmetry is a tool to do that. Mm. And uh, yeah, that's basically my life. <laughs> right on, right on. So, um, why don't we just go ahead and uh, get this stuff going? Because I have some questions i mean there's some terminology there which you know every field has but so you're saying what like it but it's not in many fields you arrive and say we don't even know what this kind of thing is but yet we use it and it works um is quantum field theory i guess in some way a black box because we don't understand it rigorously uh yeah i, I kind of do think of it like that sometimes i wonder what is like the scope of things you can model in quantum field theory and sometimes i think it might be everything so mm, mm. uh yeah that's i i guess it kind of is a black box in a lot of ways and so by everything you mean well so you have the renormalization group right and so in some sense like on any scale you can write down a field theory but a quantum field theory uh what i mean by that is just yeah. like imagine you have like some observers in some space and you're curious about what those observers might see in reality, mm -hmm. I kind of think that you might be able to construct any set of observables you want to on that space with any sort of correlations oh, you want with a complicated enough field theory. Mm. I have this hunch that that's possible to do, but I don't really have a, a good idea of that. Right. Yeah, no, but it, but it's kind of your intuition. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Mind blown already once. <laughs> um, wow. so, and so You can imagine, like, right, I just make some field theory with tons of different scalars and I can artificially increase decrease I can put in potentials that make things have weird correlation functions that obey weird things mm. I mean we know field theories where correlation functions are entirely topologically driven right right I mean Witten has a, a fields medal for realizing that not invariants are somehow encoded in field theory so like yeah yeah wow 
man, Witten, Witten is like on a whole nother level. Um, <laughs> he is a, I mean, listening to him talk is like listening to an angel speak. Um, and except the angel is kind of, talk? except, except the angel is kind of arrogant and a dick, you know, it's like, <laughs> but like when he talks about quantum really field theory, I talk, I just feel like I, 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 there's something weird about listening to him talk. I don't know what it is. Well, I mean, like, I guess I'm referring to that. There's this, like, if you go to YouTube and you see, like, and you search, like, Ed Witten, like, young boy talk or whatever. Like, when he's super young, like, he's there with, like, all the big shots of particle physics. And he, like, the way he thinks is just on full display. And, I mean, it is just the most entertaining thing to see. True. I, I do see what you're saying there. Yeah, yeah. But, like, I guess that's what I meant. Like, give a talk or a lecture or anything? No, no, no. Actually, I haven't. <laughs> it's weird it's not it's not like a it's not the way i would structure talks all the time mm, mm, i see i see yeah well i mean he's at Witten, so i guess he's he kind of does what he wants on that so lucas yeah yeah yeah, yeah. lucas vb uh has a interesting comment he says um so they are the epicycles of quantum field theory basically um um yeah go ahead that's those are two this is a different yeah. thing right this isn't yeah, yeah, like this yeah. is a phenomena where i can prescribe whatever i want to describe it it's more like this is a playground where i can make anything i want happen mm. and is, is that I see. yeah yeah and so is do you think that's an overall plus or a negative for quantum field theory well it makes it seem really hard to think about you know these stories about there's a beauty in a quantum field theory or some unique quantum field theory describing something and right that it just it seems in contradiction to what I understand about about field theory, if that makes sense. Yeah, no. Um, you get these, re- you know, you. I feel like you. But get at the these... same time, you see all these little inklings of things like it's so natural for things to be in four dimensions, where these crazy things are happening with respect to correlation functions, where you get electromagnetism as sort of long range forces and things like that. Right. So, I think that the restriction, like, in the uniqueness, comes from imposing things that are not necessarily related to, like, mm-hmm. Lorentz invariance and you know, renormalizability and things like that, then you can start to talk in a meaningful way about, you know, uniqueness and things like that. And yeah. 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 Well, the renormalizability thing is really just, if I ask what this thing looks like at long distances, right. right. And what am I going to see? Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not so much that it's necessary. It's that if you included it, it wouldn't even make a difference, you know, really. I mean, it's, it's almost, I don't even think it's like something you choose to include. I think it's imposed on you straight up when you ask about what someone at long distance is going to see in a field theory. Like, like what, what is an observer at long distance is going to think is happening in the world? Like you're going to see the renormalized, the renormalizable theory. Cause that's the only thing that exists at long distances. I see. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, and that's an amazing fact, you know? Um, so if you had to give a kind of intuition pump on why renormalizable operators are, uh, are the only relevant ones. Could you do that on the spot? Uh, I, hmm. I don't know if I well, could. That's okay, why I'm so asking it depends you. depends on what, how you think about renormalizable, right? Right, right. So when we taught it, and at least the way I've, I, was, I was taught it, was you sort of look at the dimension of the operator and ask whether or not that thing is going to get dimensions from a, from a scale in the problem or if it's from mm. the field theory intrinsically, right? Mm-hmm. And the scale of the problem is sort of the upper bound on the way you define the physics. So mm. I'm thinking about is it's a low limit of string theory, it's going to be the string scale or something like that. Right. That's the renormalizable scale I'm thinking of. Mm. And in which case, it's not very intuitive what's happening. The perspective I like sort of comes from more of the condensed matter for point of view where you can have something like a lattice and you ask, okay, what is the field theory uh, continuum generalization of this lattice? Mm. And you'll get these operators in the theory that are not renormalizable. 
and then you float along distances. So you ask, okay, this is what happens on this short distance on a lattice, but what happens to my observers that are really far distances on the lattice? Right. And you'll see that these things will flow to zero, and then all of a sudden, all the terms that are left over are, say, instead of having the symmetries of the lattice like you'd expect it to have at long distances, it has the symmetries of a of a sphere or something like right, that. Right, yeah. I remember we went over this in like uh, one of our uh, previous chats. Not, I assume you're trying to get no, me to, to say this. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no. I mean, it's uh, that's part of a good host is, you know, asking leading questions. You know, But it's, it's not really intuitive why something like six-point interactions for for scalar fields don't happen at long distances, right? No, I agree. Um, and that's what I was saying is that, like, to me, that's not entirely obvious. Um, I would well, say, I yeah. Maybe it makes sense in the sense that like what you're doing with your, when you write down operators in a field theory is you're tracking the way that things collide into each other, right? Mm -hmm. And that's just mm -hmm. not really possible to track six things colliding like that. But yeah, like they're gonna get overwhelmed by the, the three point interactions, for instance. Right, the, right. Even at tree level. I don't know. No, yeah, I mean that's yeah, I mean if you if you take into account the fact that this is all kind of a perturbation expansion with mm -hmm. you know this small coupling and you realize that at least, you know, heuristically that each vertex corresponds to a certain power of that uh of that small number and you know, but you could imagine just writing by hand, you know, a phi to the fifth, you know, term which is not necessarily um you know, I mean has a small number multiplying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it could, in principle, dominate. Uh, yeah, I mean, but that would be something about short distance physics. Is, is I think the the story of renormalizability is that that's telling you something about short distance physics and not long distance physics. Mm -hmm. Because like at long distances, it's just hard to sort of track that. Right, right, right. I just, that's I'm trying to build an intuitive picture. No, 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 actually. I agree. No, it's difficult. It was a, I mean, I gave you a question that I didn't have the answer for. Um, but <laughs> the, the, the story about why lattices or why a diamond or a large metal looks like it has rotationally invariant physics is mind boggling me. I think that's like the best intuition I can come up for. Yeah, what's no, happening. Exactly. Yeah, the, that was kind of the intuition pump that like is that so so give us that symmetry argument uh, about uh, that you had about, you know, the symmetries that are not necessarily there at the small or that are there at the small scale well i guess you well, can have it both ways but they're actually enlarged right because the it's a finite group at, at, for a lattice versus a lee group for for long distances for mm. a sphere right right, right. infinitely many yeah. elements you can have right that, right that's it. i see i see okay yeah so you're saying you can get this kind of this lee group symmetry from the continuum limit of all of these uh kind of discrete symmetries group. But there are also theories where this doesn't happen. For instance, uh, there are these newer models, these fracton models. So they appear in the condensed matter stuff. There was a paper real recently. I haven't read it yet. I've, I've been meaning to. These fracton models. I listened to a guy talk about it at UCLA, actually, hmm. where they intentionally put the matter fields in a representation of the finite group that okay. doesn't have a continuum limit. And then it can't flow to a continuum theory. That's... And then it, you still have the symmetries of the lattice at long distances. I see, I see. So it's this, I mean, it, emergent kind of phenomena or like something that's so fascinating and, you know, so not in-depth understood. And I mean, and like quantum field theory is a lot closer than you would think to, you know, li like lending, you know, because you think that's like the job of chemistry or a physical chemist or something like that. But I mean, like, really, it, I feel like this is, you know, people in like in philosophical conversations throw around the term emergence all the time. But I mean, mm -hmm. that's a very, very kind of, 
emergence seems like something that's really natural to quantum field theories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So you said that you use, um, so earlier during the introductions, that you mm -hmm. uh, use supersymmetry to study these non-perturbative. So I guess maybe we should first say what like a non-perturbative quantum field theory is or just what non-perturbativity means. Um, yeah, okay. So how do I think about this? So usually what I think about is something I can't draw with the Feynman diagram. Right, yeah. So what is a Feynman diagram, right? It's just saying, all right, I know what's in my initial state and what's in my final state. I don't know what happens, but mm -hmm. I can think about it as being a bunch of small collisions. That's something that's perturbative mm -hmm. or a Feynman diagram. That's a great idea. But wow. when I can't do that sort of a, that sort of visualization of it being a bunch of small things put together, then it becomes non-perturbative. Mm. I love that. Man, that was great. Wow. <laughs> um, and so mathematically, right now, I mean, so... I remember you telling me one time in one of our conversations that there are certain physically viable theories that you can write down, and I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct what I'm saying, mm -hmm. that there are observables that can't correspond to a Lagrangian. Um, I think so you, I, don't know, I don't know too much about non-Lagrangian theories, so I don't want to right, say fair too enough. much about it. But, okay, for, so there's this story in supersymmetry where if I'm going to write down a Lagrangian my, in four dimensions, mm -hmm. my supersymmetry, the amount of supersymmetry I kind of have is either with four supercharges, which is the minimal amount, Mm -hmm. Or I can have eight, or I can have sixteen, mm. and we're not able to write in a twelve supercharge. Uh, sorry, so it was four, eight, it's missing twelve, and then we have sixteen. Uh, there's no Lagrangian theory I can write down that has twelve supercharges. Okay. And the reason for that is if you write down the things that have twelve supercharges, and you impose something like CPT on my theory, the CPT conjugate of that automatically implies that you have sixteen supercharges. Oh wow. So for those of you who don't know, are, the CPT, people have written down theories yeah. that are 12 supercharges. They just don't have a Lagrangian description. I, I think they come from some huh. uh, rectification of 60 or, or okay. some, some 60 theory. I don't. I was about to I say, really because like, like, like my intuition. I don't think these say... Lagrangian things have come from string theory down in. I'm pretty sure. Okay. The people that talk better are all string theories, but that's like everything in, in, in like high level QFT stuff. So right. hard to say. Yeah, no, um, man, uh, I kind of lost, but fair enough. I guess we should um, move forward because I had a question, but I think I lost it. Um, well, there's, there are ways to calculate without a Lagrangian. Right. There's like these CFT bootstrapping things and things like that. I okay. don't know anything about it, but those are words that people throw around. <laughs> um, okay, so I think I remember my question. So when you said... Um, that when you can't write down or that you can write down a theory that doesn't have a Lagrangian, my understanding as a particle physicist, right, is that's what it means to write down a theory is to write down a Lagrangian. And so, but you're saying you can write down some other theory, take mm -hmm. a limit that has, you know, I forget the number, but some supercharges, but you couldn't have written, and, and those are your observables, but you couldn't mm -hmm. have written that down in like, as a Lagrangian. Right. Yeah. Huh. But those are viable observables. Supposedly. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Supposedly this theory exists. People are convinced there are theories without Lagrangian descriptions. I know there's some 2D ones with weird amounts of supersymmetry that have it. Hmm. Again, I don't know too much about it, so I don't want to I don't want to go on about it. Okay, but, fair uh, enough, yeah. So um, when you said that, you know, you're into non-perturbative um, quantum field theory. I use supersymmetry to calculate these things. Yeah, exactly. And so what, do you, what exactly do you mean by that? How does supersymmetry help you with non-perturbative? Uh, how can it let a standard model quantum field theory or just any model we hope to write down about the real world. Hmm. Okay, uh, I mean, so in general, I think that the amount of things we understand about quantum field theory is pretty limited, and any progress you could make on that is is 
is a good progress. Yeah, yeah no, I agree with that. Yeah. Wow. But uh, so so the way that you we would use supersymmetry, say, is it gives you ways to correlate observables in a theory. And in particular, the ones I deal with are, are minimal amounts of supersymmetry. So these are typically harder to deal with. It sounds like it would be easier because it has minimal amounts, but more right. supersymmetry is actually easier to calculate because you have more <laughs> symmetries between your observables. Yeah, yeah. But in the minimal ones, you ended up with this language called the superspace language, where you can extend the notions of space-time to be um, to have these Grassmannian variables. Mm -hmm. It's not; it's mm -hmm. mostly just a math thing that you can do. Right, right. And it turns out that any term you can write in your Lagrangian has one of two different forms. One of them comes from chiral observable, some chiral operators, and one of them has non-chiral operators. And these chiral operators end up being unique, and mm. that you can't; they don't change from perturbation theory. Mm. And so what can happen a lot of time is you can calculate something not with non-perturbative physics, like an instanton effect or something like that, mm. that generates one of these chiral operators. I see. But then it's guaranteed to remain that value even as you flow to the IR, mm. so to long distances. So you take some strongly interacting theory like QCD, you make it super symmetric. In some cases of, of this theory, you can write down terms that are, uh, you can generate terms with an instanton, which is a purely non-perturbative thing, mm -hmm. in your superpotential, and that is the exact superpotential, and it won't change even when you go to long distances. So mm. you formulate what the interactions that you generate are on your wow. mesons and baryons exactly, and they remain true. Mm -hmm. Wow, okay, so we could, I could, I do have a couple questions, but I mean, we, but, but there are some, um, yeah, yeah. other questions here in the comments. So I'll read this one off. Um, it's by Eric Aspling. Uh, he says, uh, what do you think about using Susie as a model to deal with chirality? Uh, what are your thoughts on the missing sparticles? That's the super particles. Yeah. So there's two uh, questions. So, yeah. I assume by chirality, you mean the fact that the, the, the way people often use supersymmetry is to explain something called the hierarchy problem, mm. which is a question of why is the Higgs mass the value it is? And it's a gross over, oversimplification, but yeah, it'll yeah. serve the value of what it is here. Yeah. Um, and this isn't a problem for a lot of the particles, like fermions, because they end up having something called a natural mm -hmm. uh, mass mm -hmm. because they don't they don't receive large corrections from from this thing that we've been talking about flowing from short distances to long distances. Right. Um, and the way that supersymmetry helps solve this is it implies that the the Higgs boson has its own fermion partner, and mm. it inherits the chiral symmetry from the from the fermion partner that makes it have a natural mass. Mm. Um, so, what do you think about thought about using as a deal with, deal with chirality? Um, so I think it's an elegant solution. I think it's yeah, no, I think it's super. Think it should have been true. Nature worth... fucked up. Like, it should have been true. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think that's that's really easy to see from our perspective wow. too. I think people yeah, that are ten years older, twenty years older than us probably would have said something like Technicolor should be the solution. Right? You know, yeah. People really I mean, that's like good Technicolor. Point, yeah. Yeah. Um, I just don't. I, it's not really my interest of whether or not that is that is the an actual model of reality. Mm, mm. Um, yeah. So, so that's sort of my thoughts on the missing particle thing. I th I think it is a nice solution. Um, I don't actually know that much about the model building side of it. Like, what is the minimal supersymmetric standard model? I know a little bit about it, but not too much. I don't really know what the parameter range looks like. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know I, much I, about I them. I do think yeah. there, there's, there's another interesting part of supersymmetry is that you can have strong dynamics break supersymmetry for you. That's called dynamical supersymmetry breaking. So you don't mm, impose it in your theory. Right, it's just something right. that happens with, with the flow of the theory. And it's, so you just it's mean like incredibly some condensate develops and or something? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I 
I don't think it's like as obvious as saying a condensate develops. Sure. Uh, kind of actually. Some scale it's, it's, gets it's introduced a, to the problem. It's it's mostly like you can calculate what vacua have to look like in order for them to be supersymmetric, and then you mm. find that none of them exist. Oh. Okay. So therefore, you can't have a supersymmetric. Oh, vacua. that's wild. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, Damn. Okay. Yeah, and so yeah, I don't particularly have a lot of thoughts about the missing particles. Um, mm -hmm. I know that some of the parameter range is still open. There are definitely exotic extensions of MSSM that you could make work. Uh, it's just not something I'm that interested in. Fair enough. Okay, so we got um, a kind of longer question, so we'll split it into parts by Lucas VB. It says, uh, can you discuss in a little bit of detail uh, how many uh, how the path integral formalism is applied to quantum field theory? Um, and it's a clarification here, I think. So. Uh, like what kind of constraints are imposed in path integrals under quantum field theory compared to say non-relativistic quantum field theory? So why don't we deal with that first say, like, is there any difference between a, I mean, I would, for what it's worth, I would say no, actually. Um, because I mean, the only thing that will look different is your action. Your action has to be Lorentz invariant. Uh, I'm not sure I quite understand the question. I, I so when we say, so the stuff that I'm dealing with takes an understanding of the path integral that. Right. I, I don't think it's necessarily obvious that it should work, um, which is I take the path integral very literally. I say I'm going to sum over everything that could possibly exist on this space, whatever that space right, is. Right. Usually we think about it being a manifold. Mm -hmm. um, and that includes non-trivial ways of doing this. So so the thing that I'm calling an instanton, I, I talk about instanton-generated yeah, yeah. terms, this is a topologically non-trivial uh, field configuration and that if I ask about uh, whether or not it's continuously connected to the trivial vacuous so or where everything zero that would be the trivial vacuum it's there's no way of continuously moving from the instanton vacuum to the the trivial one i see um so the my interpretation of the path integral is i should try to do that sum however whatever doing that sum is we have some idea yeah. of what the sum looks like yeah. and i should do it over everything that's possible and what ends up happening is you approximation to that that's not entirely mathematically rigorous so i, I there's not really a whole lot more to say about it. Right, right. So um, I guess maybe this was my understanding of the question, say, um, at least the first part of it that I read. Is there a or quantitative or whatever, any kind of difference between a relativistic quantum field theory and a non-relativistic quantum field theory in like, when you write down the path integral? I guess in terms of the paths you can sum over. Like, do you just sum over all paths that are not, that are consistent with, you know, relativistic causality or yeah you know, uh that i i guess the way i, I mean was, there are issues like instantaneated terms are often uh, non-local terms well you end up with this like a mass term that looks like it's non-local like it connects a point x and y and things like that and so you're saying uh, which that which are weird that's, <laughs> that's what instanton terms look like yeah a lot of the time the instantaneated terms huh. look like that because you get correlations between a point at x and a point at y that aren't uh, that aren't suppressed by a propagator, and right. so that's a non-local term. Mm. Fascinating. God damn, Michael coming through with the big thing. So I I don't know if you read the last part of that question, but he says, "What kind of quote unquote paths in the configuration? Uh, sorry, in the configuration are actually under consideration?" My understanding is even the non-physical ones. No. Um. Well, the way you deal with the non-physical ones, right, is you mod out the gauge symmetry. Mm. So you you allow them to be there, and then you say, "Oh, but I actually have gauge symmetry." Removes those. Mm. 
Okay, fair enough. Um, so, so, so you mean unphysical in the sense of being in the same equivalence class, or I guess being yeah. in the same gauge orbit? Does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I think the commutation relations we impose on fields immediately give, means that everything has to be uh, local, you know, yeah. causally related. Yeah. And fair enough. So I, I think, I think we have, there's like stuff under the hood and what's allowed and what isn't allowed that that's not necessarily so obvious when we say we're going to sum over all possible things. I see. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're summing over all possible things given these things we did beforehand. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so we have another question here from Juan Alejandre. I will never try to pronounce that last name. Um, hi, guys. I'm an undergraduate from Spain. My question is what is exactly renormalization and what is it used for in quantum field theory? That's a good question. Okay. So um, quantum field theory is often used to describe, so said to describe a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So we say we write down a Lagrangian that describes a quantum field theory. That's not entirely accurate. When you write down a Lagrangian, you're actually describing a classical field theory. Yeah. What makes it quantum mechanical are the commutation relations you give to the mm -hmm. fields. Yeah. And what this means is that when you do this picture, what we're talking about where you, you know, you take these things and you ask, okay, I will have some inputs and I have some outputs and I want to try to piece them together. What those commutations let you do is actually make loops in those diagrams. Mm -hmm. And those loops uh, do really weird things to your field theory. Yeah. Particularly, they make it so that the answer to that thing I'm drawing, I'm, I'm thinking about, is dependent on the amount of energy I have. But it's also worth noting that, um, you know, for the people who may not know, is that those loops, whenever you see a loop in a Feynman diagram, that, that represents something that's intrinsically quantum, that those things, you know, will never be observable inside that loop. Actually, without loops, it's just a classical process. Exactly, exactly. So it's yeah. another thing to say. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so anyway, those loops depend on the amount of energy in your process. Mm -hmm. And so what you end up with is you realize that the operators that are right in my field theory, I can describe a quantum field theory with a set of classical field theories mm. where the parameters in them change with the energy scale. And so renormalization is is the way that these parameters change wow. with the energy scale. That was... I'd, I, that was okay. If you ever are learning about quantum field theory, want to understand renormalization, get an intuition under a minute, you heard it here first. Physics after hours with Michael Waterbury. Man, that was great. Okay. Um, this one's funny. Uh, Shiro, I'm not trying to pronounce that. You guys just, I feel like, change your usernames before you know you come into this chat just to confuse me. He says, mm, me nodding, yes, not understanding anything. Ah, uh, yes, I know some of these words. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, this is, yeah, I mean, it's a complicated thing, you know, and it's it's difficult to... It I mean, takes a long time to adjust to to all the jargon in, yeah. a, in a field. And it's That's hard to, like, realize you're in jargon. Yeah. Like, you'll start talking, you'll be like, oh, yeah, a year ago that would have made zero sense to me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Lucas VB, uh, referring to his previous question he asked, he said, I asked um, because... Uh, what I read is that QFT has some subtleties, uh, and I wasn't clear on them, and that's why I was asking about the QFT difference. So, yeah, there are a lot of subtleties in quantum field theory. <laughs> yeah, so um, maybe to, to go back a little bit, it really sure, depends sure. on who you're talking to on how they think about quantum field theory. Yeah, A lot of people say quantum field theory is, rel is relativistic physics and quantum mechanics, so it's special relativity and quantum mechanics put together. Mm -hmm. But... The more general way of thinking about it is is it's just the path integral, and I can define that over any. I can have my action be a principle in any sort of manifold I want. I can have mm. the fields I'm describing wow. be a wave function with respect to time. I that's that would be non-relativistic quantum mechanics. 
So you're saying I we have no problem doing sorts this of different things. So you're saying we have no problem doing this for a non-interactive quantum field theory. Like that's well understood. Yeah, and well, and the way that we understand how to calculate with the path integral is equivalent to what you would do with a in solving a non-interacting quantum field theory outside of it. Right. Okay. I see. But but my, the point I'm making is, yeah. uh, what you call a quantum field theory is pretty much anything you want to talk about. <laughs> uh, and that wow. like non-relativistic quantum mechanics is a people will refer to it as being a zero plus one dimensional quantum field theory and that it's mm. zero space time dimensions and one time dimension. Okay, man. So, so there's no real difference in the way that these things operate. If you understand the path integral for, for non-relativistic quantum mechanics. And I, I see, I mean, yeah, no, I see what you're saying again. And that was kind of new to me. And like you're saying that, I mean, really, if we can just understand what a path integral is, you know, given some manifold, then, then, then we can make a lot of progress. That's why you're studying supersymmetry. I think uh, Ryan Reese makes a good comment here, which is just that like, it's quantum field theory is quantum mechanics with fields as the degrees of freedom. Yeah. This is also sort of, sort of, in, you know, you should really put it in quotes because right. uh, in some sense, this is also wrong because a lot of the time, you know, like I, I mentioned it briefly that Witten has realized that there are not invariants in these things mm -hmm. in some of these. And so if I take a turn Simons theory in three dimensions, it's pure turn Simons. The only, the only observables in my field theory are the Wilson loops. And it turns out the expectation values of those Wilson loops are entirely dependent on not invariants, basically. So like in that sense, you don't even have degrees of freedom that are fields, even though you wrote down a quantum field theory in the first place, because only degrees of freedom in your field theory were the loops. So, so I wrote down something that seems like it should have infinite degrees of freedom, but really it had a finite number of, of degrees of freedom. So, okay. So I guess... But that, that's, that's a really abstract way of saying it. I've just given yeah. an example where this is sort of weird. I think the real way to think about what a quantum field theory is, is that it is a, a quantum mechanics with two fields as degrees of freedom. And what is a field as a degree of freedom? Yeah, yeah we mean is that we have some space that we think about and at every point in that space there's some set of things that have values those are my fields mm -hmm. and then what does it mean to quantize that so how do i think about there being a single excitation of this field what does it mean to be one of those things that's yeah. really what a quantum is <laughs> yeah, i mean I, I i think it's good to say i mean I, I definitely saying you know it's quantum mechanics in the sense that it obeys these commutation relations that we're imposing that are characteristic of a quantum system but saying to me, saying that it is just a field theory with quantum mechanics, I think maybe it could be read just like it's no more. I'm saying like the just could also be seen as some kind of, it's only that, it's trivial, you know, it's like, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, uh, I don't understand quantum field theory. Just full, just out there with that. Um, it's a very, very difficult subject because I feel like nobody really understands it fully. Because um, if we did, we would have... You know, people understanding it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. The hard uh, thing is when those fields talk to each other; they interact. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or even when it talks to itself. Uh, you know, like a phi to the fourth term or something. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Talking to it, to each other. Yeah, I each see, other includes enough. itself. Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> inclusive. <laughs> um, so. We have another one here. It says, uh, quantum field theory and general relativity being the two pillars of modern physics, should they be considered, quote-unquote, common knowledge for working physicists? And also, I think he's saying, uh, can you talk about effective field theories? Um, I don't think so. That's hard for me to say. Yeah. Uh, part of me wants everyone to understand it. 
Um, but also, you know, if, if you're working in an experimental lab, it's not necessary for you to understand all the details of these things. Mm -hmm. I certainly don't understand GR as well as I should. Right. Uh, so, so I, I would be, it would be blasphemous for me to say that that is a common knowledge <laughs> for working physicists. And then expand a bit on it as an EFT. I think this is just generally the way that physicists think about things, actually. EFTs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, we have a special name for it because we have like a special way of talking about the way these things move from one to another, which is basically renormalization. Right. But uh, in some sense, we all know that our description of reality has to be approximate. Mm. And that's all it means. That's all the effective and, and EFT means. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's a great way of explaining it. The idea is that there's some cutoff at which your theory needs, you need to include other degrees of freedom that this one didn't. And then, I don't know if this is a common question, he says, uh, and then from studying the Lorentz group, you get the Wigner classification of the irreducible representations. I think I actually referred to this a while ago, um, or maybe not a while ago, but maybe it was last night. Fuck if I know. All the days are the same now. Um <laughs> <laughs> but um, this is just the way you do it from the Hilbert space, because usually in, in field theory we think about constructing Lorentz invariants by you know giving things indices and then making yeah. sure that everything's contracted. But really, this is just saying, oh, um, I can impose this at the level of my Hilbert space. That is amazing. And it, then there's a correspondence between the two. And I mean, the first time I learned about the Wigner classification was in the context of supersymmetry. Actually, when you have these, you know, these new generators, these anti-commuting mm -hmm. generators, and if you wanted to figure out, you know, all the different you know, the spectrum of your theory, right? You essentially create out of those, these raising and lowering operators. And so, so what is supersymmetry? It's, yeah. um, all right. So I have a Lorentz group or point query group, which describes the symmetries yeah. of my space time. Mm -hmm. And then I ask if there's anything else I can do to Im increase the size of that symmetry group or, mm -hmm. or anything like that. Um, there's this no go theorem from Coleman and Mandula, mm -hmm. uh, which says basically, okay, I can't, add anything to it. The only mm -hmm. things I can do are add products to it. I can make it trivial. I can do trivial extensions of it. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually one thing you can do. It's called a graded Lie algebra. Yeah. The details of that's not that important. It's just supersymmetry. And what this means is that every boson has a fermionic partner. And what does that is the generator which moves you between the gradations of your Lie algebra. Mm. Mm. Um, so in some sense you have this thing that splits into two, and one of them is your bosons and one of them is your fermions. And what this operator does is it generates the fermion operators from the boson operators and right. the boson operators from the fermionic operators. I see. But that's not exactly the Wigner classification. No, but you have to ask what are what are all the possible Ex yeah. representations of this thing. And since I can build one and then operate with this thing that gives me another, that entire multiplet is my set of invariants. Right. And so, since so basically we, I would have a scalar field, I would yeah. act with this, I would get a fermion, and then my super multiplet would be the scalar field and the fermion. I see, yeah. And so since the spin is related to the representation of the Poincaré group, then that's kind of how we can figure out what kind of spin particles we have in our spectrum. I mean, it just tells you what is possible given the symmetries of your manifold, right? Find anything in life that isn't zero, one half, one, three halves, two, right, right. et cetera. And then there are other general considerations that tell us that we can't have more than spin two. Okay. Okay. And you get it through this Wigner classification. Yeah. Yeah. That, Wonderful. that idea that you can only have this set of things is from the Wigner classification. It's interesting because it's, it's more subtle than you'd think it would be. It's not, yeah. it's not about there being uh, an SO4 or an SO3 one. And then what are the reps of that? It's about, I have something that is, uh, 
that is transforming in, under Poincaré symmetry. So that means I have a translational symmetry that gives me four momenta. Mm -hmm. And you ask from the possible four momenta, what are the symmetries of my four momenta? How would I construct all the four momenta from one of them? And then you get these set of matrices that are either SU2 for, so or SO, so so let me think, take a step back. I can have a particle that's not moving, which means its four momenta has to be Lorentz equivalent to uh, one entity in, in the mass point or the energy, has energy and no three momentum. And then I can rotate entirely in the three momentum, which is a set of rotations. That's yeah. an SU2. So I get all of my zero, one half, blah, blah, blah from representations at SU2 or that, that symmetry yeah. group. Yeah. But for particles that are moving at, say, at the speed of light, because that's the other possible set right. of things I can have, then it's more subtle because I don't have a three groups. Yes. You have a SO2. So you have a U of one, which is an abelian group. And then you ask, why the hell do I have a quantized spectrum of spins here? And that turns out to come out from the topology of the group. Yeah, I remember that part being extremely non-trivial, actually, because like, it's was like, really non-trivial. Yeah. It's uh, actually really easy if you think about it as, you know, it, once you understand all the inner workings, <laughs> of the you say, oh, I have something that was massive. I move it really fast. And all yeah. of a sudden now it looks massless. Mm. It had to the spectrums have to match. There's mm. no way in which I could have had anything that didn't match from that. Mm. OK, right on, right on. Man, that was awesome. Okay, I love it when Michael gets in his zone. Um, uh, but fermions in general are very confusing. It has to do with something called it being a spin manifold. Oh, I what? see a lot of people saying we don't understand fermions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so Bear. Why do fermions uh, exist is a very weird question. Can you go on about that? I guess why bosons exist then either. You know, I mean, like, 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 where's the distinction between like why should these exist but these not? Um, I think the weird thing is that they're they're anti-commuting, right? Well, I mean, couldn't you just say that? The fact that they're commuting so, is weird too. If, if we're going to talk about from the Wigner classification, right? Okay, yeah. Why do I consider projective representations and not just representations? Well, that is the equivalent question. Well, I guess because the phases are relevant, you know, to like physicality, right? Yeah. So, but it's it's not obvious that that's something I should consider, right? Because it's the difference between it being SO3 and SU2. That's true, yeah. The SU2 is what gives you those halves. Yeah, no, we're going to have to... Yeah, I, I feel like that's a talk we would have to plan in some sense. I, I don't want to, to go into it because it's, it's technical, but that's yeah, it's yeah. not an obvious thing even from, from any... The line of logic I know derives at fermions isn't a totally consistent set of logic. You know, it's like, wow. oh, we're going to consider this symmetry group, and then we're only going to consider projective representations. Right, right, or, right. Sorry, we're going to include I projective see. representations sort of thing. Why but, is that a very allowed things like that. I mean, it, I see. It, I see. In some sense you should yeah. because you don't know what you're doing. You should do everything, right? But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean like I guess in some sense, right? Like I mean quantum mechanics is saying, yes, you need to consider, you know, the projective Hilbert space, not just the full Hilbert space because you got to mod out, you know, these phases. But um bosons are I mean are, are you saying because, you know, every fermion you introduce essentially brings a U1 symmetry to it? I mean, is that why you're talking about? Sorry, wait, what? I, I guess I don't I don't see the connection between uh, that you're making between um, this projective representations and yeah, uh, yeah. Like so, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, bosons and fermions seem to kind of be on equal footing in terms of projective so representation. The way I understand it, this could be wrong. Is if I ask about representations of SO three, right? Yeah. I'll just get the the vector and spin two and so on from there. Okay. Yeah. But if I ask about projective representations of the group, mm -hmm. I have to also consider uh, additional phases, 
which is this plus or minus one mm. that's like the z2 i can mod out mm. and then i get representations of su2 which okay. include the spin half representation the two-dimensional representation and so I see. on okay 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 yeah I, I'm not 100% sold that that's the right way to think about it. Yeah, no, no, I'm not saying, but I mean, I see what your argument was saying. Yeah, also. yeah. Okay. So Lucas VB uh, saying, what is an intuitive explanation for the Coleman-Mandula theorem uh, and its consequence in terms of what kind of future theories we can develop? Uh, in in terms of in, intuition, uh, I feel like, I mean, the intuition I heard is that, I mean, if you assume, right, that you have some extra internal symmetry, right, that you include it, then you can show that essentially for an arbitrary scattering process all of the scattering angles are quantized which is not true yeah yeah uh i don't have a, a rigorous way of or intuitive reason yeah, of no. why yeah. that's true i'm not saying that's but intuitive but yeah essentially essentially you can imagine okay if my group was larger i would have more symmetries to constrain my 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 correlation functions so what angles things could end up at mm. is would be what the thing i'm evaluating functions of and because I have more symmetries, I have further ways of constraining mm, it. Mm, mm. And therefore, I have smaller, I, I don't have a continuum of angles. I have some smaller subset of the angles that That's are possible. That's great. Is that essentially that, I'm just going to repeat that, I guess, you know, is that what Michael's saying? Is that, you know, we have these, you know, given the matter content that we have in this standard model, um, symmetries are extremely constraining about what you can write down, or that there exists this other symmetry, given the same matter content, then you are restricting it too much. Um, and that's the intuition for why these scattering angles, I guess, would be quantized if you introduce another symmetry, internal symmetry. Um, <clears throat> awesome. And then awesome. what are the consequences of, for future theories? It just means that uh, basically Poincaré symmetry is what you're going to get. You can't do anything else with it. Um, see, yeah. With the exception of supersymmetry is the only other thing you could get, which really ends up just kind of being a coincidence on the level of your Lagrangian. Okay, so... Uh, moving on, uh, it says, is supersymmetry somehow related to Nether's theorem? Uh, I guess. No, there's no, no continuous uh, symmetry here. No, I mean, what? Supersymmetry is a continuous symmetry? Uh, okay, so, okay, I did lie uh, a little bit about that. Yeah. I, I do get U of 1 R charges, which have a current. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, I guess, yeah, okay. And, but that's, that's, that's the uh, only thing I can think of. Okay, but 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 you're saying you don't have a physical conserved current of given a supersymmetry, like like swapping the fermion with the boson. You know, it's like um, you don't. Another theorem doesn't apply to discrete symmetries. I mean, that's a fact. Yeah, yeah, that's a fact. Uh, so th there is a yeah a continuous symmetry associated to it. So once yeah. at the level of your states, you can assign new charges that are different for your your particles and the super particles, the super yeah. partners, and that does give you a new current that constrains things. And that's the R charge current you were yeah. talking about. Yeah. Okay. Right. It's on. important for anomaly considerations and things like that. Right on. Right on. I love that. Okay. So uh, Steve Trittel, uh asking, uh, what's the intuitive reason that particles end up being formalized as irreducible representations of symmetry groups? What a good question. So this really just goes to group theory. Wow. Um. So, so what are irreps? They are basically the set of all things that can transform like that. Mm. So you say, all right, I have this set of symmetries of my object, right? Mm. And you know, okay, this thing does rotates whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You ask, what are all the possible things that can rotate with this? Mm. And that's the, what irreps are. So why do, I, why do my particles coincide with irreps? Is because you ask, okay, I have this space-time symmetry. Mm. What are all the possible things that could exist in this? What are all the possible things that could rotate under the symmetry or, you know, transform under Poincaré symmetry? Yeah. And the only answer is 
the realms of it. Wow. Because all the other things have to be composites of irreps, which are reducible. Mm. So irreps are irreducible representations. Right? Um, so, so the way you yeah. arrive at a group theory is you do something like write down some random tensor that transforms into this thing, right? Yeah. And you say, okay, what is the thing composed of? Mm. And you ask, well, how each of the parts of it transform? And then that set of the things that transform are your irreps. Right, right, right. I see, I see. So essentially the idea is that you can take any direct product, right, decompose it into these, uh, I guess what we're calling irreducible representations and figure out how each component transforms. Component and they transform your... independently of each other is the, the crucial thing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the fact that I have some singlet that transforms independent, that doesn't do anything as part of this three by three matrix, whatever it is. So, you know, mm -hmm. what, I can imagine I had something that was nine components. Mm. And it looked like all of them transformed together, but it turns out that one of them is independent of it. Mm. So when I'm describing the physics of this thing, I should really think about it being an independent object from the eight other degrees of freedom there. I see, I see. Yeah. Oh, wow, man, man, Michael, wow. Michael, bringing the heat tonight. I love it. <laughs> okay. Um, it's a good question. No, it's a great question. I mean, I'm not entirely sure I understand the answer just yet, but it's a wonderful question um, because it, I mean if you keep asking the question, you know, what's a particle, what's a particle, I mean, and you go to some particle physicist, they might say it's an irreducible representation of the Poincaré group. Uh, that's what a particle is. Sorry, there's a comment here. Uh, so you can define supercurrents. Okay, yeah, on, on yeah. So let me just read the question out here. So he says, um, George Bear says, supercharge is a conserved quantity of SUSY that's supersymmetry and follows up with saying Nether's theorem works for supermanifolds. So yeah, so so you can define supercurrents on it, mm -hmm. right? I don't uh, I think see. there's there's a current associated to the supercharge, right? Yeah, I mean you like you said, like you transform the superfield by an overall phase, the the yeah, yeah. component fields transform how they do and um that's that's the only one I see. No, this theorem definitely works on supermanifolds, but you end up with our what we call supercurrents, which are that Okay. You know, they it's I shouldn't just think about the boson current because part of that boson can become a fermion basically under with no consequences of symmetry. Mm, so mm. I have to consider both of them together. I see, I see. So it's basically, you basically just redefine currents on superfields. Okay. If I remember the way it works properly. Fair enough, fair enough. So um, Steve Chattel says, ah, that's exactly, or he says that's actually super helpful. Uh, never understood why reducible representations didn't count. He's a topologist, by the way. You guys would get along. Um, <laughs> uh, he says, but it's not that they don't count. It's just that it suffices to understand the irreducible representations because we think of general representations as describing some composite of some sort. Yeah, yeah no, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Um, yeah. You used way better words than I did, but yeah, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, yeah, it definitely seems like you guys were saying, you know, the same thing is that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for in terms of group theory? Um, anyways, let's move on before I divulge too much of my ignorance. Well, this next one's hard. Okay. So actually <laughs> what we're going to do first is we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back in a couple okay, minutes. Okay, good. I get time to think about this one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that one's a little... Thank you. 